Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, House of Cards, was recorded as a pop-up show live at the State Theater in Traverse City, Michigan in March 2017. It was a benefit for Safe Harbor, a local homeless shelter in development. Hearsay performers from the Northern Michigan community took the stage to tell stories of their own experiences with housing vulnerability. The first story of the evening was performed by Matt Soderquist, a social worker and licensing consultant for the state of Michigan. Matt volunteers for Habitat for Humanity and Team Red, White, and Blue. $6,000. I laughed out loud. Not a someone just told a funny joke laugh, but rather an, oh my God, I'm pretty much screwed laugh. You know the type of laughter that comes instead of tears, beyond the tears, because tears just don't have enough absurdity attached to them. (laughs) On the other end of the line was the well drilling guy, and it was completely silent. He explained the cost to me. It's going to be $6,000 because the water's at 75 feet, but the health department or the county or some government regulator requires it to be at 150 feet, which essentially is going to double the cost of your water. Adrenaline was pulsing through my veins. I was shaking. I felt weightless. I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. There was a ringing in my ears and I couldn't hear. I'll have to call you back. And I hung up. I was no stranger to the threat of living without water. When I was 10 years old, I was sitting out on the front porch and a city works truck pulled up to the house. He got out of the truck and he had a look on his face kind of like someone had just told him his dog had died. He asked if my mom was home and he explained to her that he had come to shut off the water. He said that it typically wasn't allowed, but since she had kids, he'd give us a couple minutes to go inside and fill whatever we could. So we ran inside the house, we filled up all the tubs, the kitchen sink, the empty two-liter bottles, and any empty milk jugs we could find. A few minutes later, we came back out on the front porch, the truck was already gone, and the only thing was a mound of fresh dirt that covered the shutoff valve to the street. My mom looked defeated, ashamed. She was doing her best, but the water shutoff was the first time that I had realized how vulnerable we were. A late child support check or a flat tire could mean the difference between lights and water. My mom likes to joke, joke now that she has gone from living paycheck to paycheck to living direct deposit to direct deposit. But when that city works guy arrived to shut off the water, she'd long been robbing Peter to pay Paul and juggling numerous shutoff notices. Oftentimes floating checks, dropping off past due bills the day before they were due, just to give us a couple more days. But somehow, that day the water was never shut off. This time, 
I knew I wasn't going to be as lucky. My ex-wife was awarded the marital home when we divorced. I'd moved into a month-to-month lease with extremely high rent, unsustainably high rent. A year and a half later, instead of having the marital home refinanced, it was foreclosed on. With a foreclosure on my credit report, my only option to reduce my living expenses was a land contract on an old home. I zeroed out my savings to make the down payment. The low monthly payment would allow me some room to fix the place up. It was old, but it was down at the end of a cul-de-sac in a wooded neighborhood. We painted the kitchen a deep forest green. We painted the living room library red. We had bookshelves along both walls. And one of my favorite things to do was to stoke the wood stove, get a strong cup of coffee, and look out the picture glass window overlooking the creek where the deer came in every night. Two years in, the roof started leaking in several places. My friends and I replaced the roof. They did it for beer and pizza. Now, if you have friends that will re-roof a house for beer and pizza, they're either masochistic or you have some really great friends. But the materials alone wiped out what I'd managed to save. The water well going out found me living direct deposit to direct deposit. But I wasn't just broke. I was brokenhearted. I was angry at myself. I was embarrassed. But even below those surface emotions, I was simply terrified. I was nervous my ex-wife wouldn't let the kids stay with me. I was nervous the county might come to try to evict us because we didn't have running water. I told the kids it probably wasn't a good idea to tell other people that we didn't have water. I told them that people wouldn't understand, even our close family. This was confusing to them because it really didn't seem like a big deal. We took showers every day, our clothes were clean, and the house was always picked up. They didn't seem to mind that we spent more time at the beach and oftentimes went to the community pool. Maybe that's just what I'm telling myself. Maybe they'll tell me different when they're older. It's not like we didn't have any water. We like to say we switched from running water to walking water. We literally walked at a minimum 20 gallons of water that we collected in jugs from my friend's house into the house every week for showers and cooking. We captured rainwater and snowmelt from the roof, which when I researched this, it turns out is actually illegal to do. But we filled up four 55-gallon barrels that were in the basement so that we could continue to flush the toilets. Paranoid that the water police might come and arrest me, I'd oftentimes just wait until after dark. Rainy days took on a whole new meaning for us. It was like liquid gold coming from the sky. I even developed a heightened sense of awareness for the weather 
and would sometimes wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning to a tap, tap, tap. And I knew I had to get out there and get the water. We were probably more prepared for an electric outage than most people. We bought a battery-powered shower, and we'd heat the water on the wood stove. Every two weeks, we'd spend half an hour at the laundromat, which was actually kind of nice as a one-and-done type chore rather than what usually seems just like an endless task. And I don't know why, but at every laundromat we went to, there was like the Family Feud show on a continuous loop. <laughs> so we made it a joke that survey says, come and help Dad fold the laundry. But I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Some days there was a lot of stress involved with not being able to turn on the tap. Sometimes I'd be sitting in meetings at work wearing a suit and tie, and I'd look around and I'd wonder if anyone else had woken up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go down to the community pool because they'd ran out of water to shower in the night before. We went without water for a year. The land contract came due, but not before several other major things broke in the house. I didn't have enough to keep the house and pay off the land contract. We lost our hefty down payment and the money we'd sunk into the home. I lost the house my kids had spent half their life in. The house I thought was going to help bring us more financial security. You know, sometimes you look around and you see that you might need a new floor or some new furniture or maybe just a little cleaning. So you go along with life for six months or a year. And then you look out the window one day and there's a wrecking ball. And it turns out that the universe thinks your entire foundation is shot and you need to start over from scratch. So the kids packed up all of our things, and we started over from scratch. Thank you. The next performer, Karen Killian, moved to Traverse City in 2015. Karen is a consultant specializing in helping nonprofits and mission-based social enterprises put their ideas into action. So it was March. It was the beginning of the end of that winter we now all refer to as simply the polar vortex. That winter that for so many of us felt like it might never end. It was March and I was standing outside in the melting snow with my dad by the back door of the house that he lived in in South Minneapolis. It was March and the sun was shining with a warmth that I could feel on my face for the first time in what felt like forever. The yard around us was a mosaic of mud and ice, but the snow was melting and rising from the earth was the smell of dirt, that smell of newness and rotting overlapping. That smell that meant the change was coming finally, uncontrollably, irreversibly. 
I was standing there in that muddy yard next to my dad, watching him watch me. His hair was short. He'd shaved it off a few months before, and he looked frail, weak. He'd had one hand on the doorknob, another on the filthy aluminum siding when he asked me, are you sure you're ready for this, Schnooky? Of course, I answered, because really, what other choice did I have? When my father opened that door into his house that sunny March day, he was letting me into the one place he had left in the world that he could call home for the first time in nearly a decade. He was letting me into his house for the first time in years because he was dying. My father had reached that place in cancer treatment that I'm sure at least some of you know intimately. That moment when you have to admit that nothing is working. After all the months of determination and positivity, after trying treatment after treatment, drug after drug, and watching his blood counts and moderating his sleep and his eating and his exercise and his bowel movements with scientific precision, all in hope that he might be one of the few that gets lucky, who beats the odds, he had finally come to admit that it was almost over. He didn't have much time left. My dad was 65 years old that spring, and he'd lived in that house for 20 years. He'd moved into this house after making a series of very bad financial decisions, most of which he made without telling my mother, which had left them both broke. He'd moved into this house after his divorce from my mom. He'd moved into this house after coming out as a gay man. He'd moved into this house after his first bankruptcy. And he'd moved into this house after his suicide attempt. He'd moved into that house because he'd had no other place to go. And he was only able to move into this house because of an informal agreement he'd made with the owner that he could live there practically for free in exchange for work. He was supposed to have fixed the place up. Now, fixing up old houses, redesigning, remodeling, and restoring all types of old houses from the most simple family home to multi-million dollar mansions on Lake of the Isles was what my dad did. It was his passion and it had become his profession. Parked right there in that yard was his diesel half-ton truck with the custom bed and the rainbow stickers running down each side, as well as the custom traber he had built with one of his brothers. The trailer was designed specifically to look like a house on wheels with a slightly pitched metal roof and green eaves and windows with shutters. In bold block letters running down the side of the trailer, it said Select Renovation, the name of my dad's company. And just before that, below that, in italicized calligraphy, it read, So many old houses, so little time. His trademark tagline. He'd invented and built the trailer. He'd redesigned and remodeled hundreds of houses all over Minnesota. But for whatever reason, he'd never managed to fix up that house. And now, even the little time there'd been was gone. So my dad opened the back door and I followed him inside. I'm certain the reason my dad had not let us into his house for so many years was that he didn't want to admit how bad it had gotten and how powerless he seemed to be to fix it. That back door opened up into the kitchen, or rather, a rough approximation of a kitchen, there was a couple of cabinets and a four-foot-long tile countertop he'd installed about 18 years before. And there was a sink and an old stove and an old fridge perched at an odd angle against the back wall. 
There was even a table, but it was loaded with what appeared to be at least six months' worth of mail and dust. But the plaster on the walls was cracked and crumbling down, hanging by its final horse hairs. And in many places, there was no walls left at all, but just bare lath. The back wall of the house, the other side of which had once been a lean-to shed which my dad had torn down, consisted in spots of only two inches of foam board insulation, which meant that was all that had been between him and two months of below zero temperatures while he was going through chemo. Only a few feet from the kitchen counter was his bed. He'd also squeezed in an elliptical machine and an inversion table because he was a gay man and quite fond of his fitness right till the very end. And there was an old couch pushed against the wall, but you couldn't sit on it. It was covered with what appeared to be his entire wardrobe. The rest of the house was uninhabitable. The plaster had been stripped down to the bare lath, and the rooms were stuffed full of box upon box. Stacked inside the door of the front porch were hundreds of antique balusters rescued from a demo job that he had grand plans for. You had to climb over them to even get through to the upstairs. The thing is, though, I'm certain that when my dad looked at those rooms, he didn't see what I saw. Because my dad was a guy who saw possibility, potential, before he saw reality. He really believed that everything, or at least every house, could be made better. He even had a habit of telling you so anytime you walked through your front door, whether you asked him to or not. And I'd seen him do it like magic over and over and over again. When I was a girl, my family bought lots of rundown houses, and we fixed them up. My parents did a few like this when I was very young, and when I was six, we moved into the house that would be my childhood home. My, it was on a large wooded lot at the end of a dead-end street. My first memories of that house were how bad it stunk, because the previous owner had been a chain-smoking hermit who hadn't left the house in years. You could trace her favorite paths through the house according to the tobacco stains on the ceiling. I found it very perplexing as a six-year-old that the worst stains were above the toilet. <laughs> we spent 10 years fixing up that house, raising the roof and adding on on three sides and putting in custom woodwork and tearing down walls and putting up new walls. We even had a special system that my dad invented in the walls out of an old shop mac and many, many feet of tubing so we could open secret little doors all over the house and vacuum without having to haul the vacuum along with us. My dad installed car stereo speakers into the ceilings around the house and even in the bathroom so that we could listen to music while taking a shower. He hauled loads and loads of old cobblestones from an old street and sent us as young teenagers out in the yard to lay cobblestone every time we got in trouble. Everything, every day, was a new idea and a new invention, possibility stacked upon possibility, all built in the quest of perfection. But the thing is, is we never ever really got to just live in that house. We were always working on it. There was rarely a moment when we stopped and just were there. Because when I was a girl, when I was a girl, I used to lay in bed at night and close my eyes, imagining what the house might someday look like when it was finally done. Because for me as a kid, home didn't seem to be where we lived. 
Home was an unattainable ideal, a possibility we were working toward day in and day out, but which in the end we never really reached. We did finish that house, but the final details weren't completed until the day we sold it. My family lost that house when I was 16. We lost it not because of a job loss or a medical emergency or any of the other complicated catastrophes that happen to families all over the country every single day. We lost that house because my father was so obsessed with possibility that he couldn't be content just living in the one place. He couldn't settle down and just be. During the last few years we lived in that house, when it was finally nearing completion, he'd bought a series of other dilapidated rental properties, at least one of which he bought without telling my mother. He had the idea that he, or rather we, were going to fix those up somehow ten times faster than we'd fixed up anything before and rent them out, and suddenly that there would be money, and this money would pay for our college education and all of the other things that we'd never had. So when we lost our house, we weren't really homeless. We were fortunate that way. What we had was a rundown apartment building that we could move into. And we did, and we worked, and we worked, and we worked, and we lived in these tiny little rooms that smelled like cat piss. And even then, when it was all over, we lost that too. Because about that time that building was nearing completion, that place, my parents got divorced, and all of the buildings were sold. And that was when my dad had moved into that house that house which in the end would be his last. Because the thing is, the ability to see possibility, to recognize potential, is a gift. But what really makes a house a home is the ability to choose where you already are and decide to stay there, to stop seeking, to stop moving, and to settle in. Two months after that March day, I checked my dad out of the University of Minnesota Medical Center and drove him over the Mississippi to the a hospice in St. Paul. It was a beautiful place with windows that let in the sunshine and a lovely garden with fountains and flowers. It was a special hospice for terminally ill patients without means. We were so grateful to have this beautiful spot to retreat to, but it had taken my dad weeks to go. We checked him in at 10 o'clock in the morning, and he died 18 hours later. My father's last words before he died were, I will. It had begun with a phone call. His cell phone rang twice during his last lucid hour. He asked who it was, and we told him it was a client and a friend, neither of which had known how sick he'd gotten, how close he was to the end. He told us he'd call them back later after he had a nap. I will, he said while he was drifting off. I will, I will. I will. He continued like that through the night. Surely, I know, he wasn't still saying the words, but I listened to his breath growing raspier and raspier as the fluid filled his lungs. All I heard was, I will, I will. Even his dying words were an intention. More plans unrealized, more possibilities that just floated out across the room. Six months after my dad died, my husband and I made an offer on a little old house on 10th Street here in Traverse City. Matt, my husband, had been commuting from our home in Chicago up here for nearly two years at that point, and we decided it was finally time to make the shift. In the 18 years that we've been married, Matt and I have lived in Chicago, Ann Arbor, Taos, New Mexico, 
and once for two years out of our Volkswagen Golf as we took a very long extended camping trip that my mother still refers to as my early retirement. We also spent nearly three years living in Peru as Peace Corps volunteers. For me, home had come to be wherever Matt was, as long as there was coffee. But the thing is, is I had the problem too, is that I kept seeing possibility every time I turned around. It was really hard to imagine stopping and just being and saying, no, this, this is the place. I never found it. But as my two daughters had gotten older, I'd come to realize that what I wanted more than anything for them was a place where their childhoods could happen, a place they could call home, even if I might never do it. So we ended the lease on our apartment in the city and began to search for a house. It took us months, of course, to find a house in this town, in part because there was almost nothing on the market, but also because I was aware every time I looked at a house that I had to check myself. I had to stop and say, Karen, are you looking at what's actually there or are you looking at what's in your mind? What is possible or what is actually there in front of you are two different things. But one night at 6 o'clock, a little old house popped up on the MLS and I called my realtor immediately and I got in the car at 4 o'clock the next morning and I drove straight here to look at it and I wrote an offer and we had a house. It was perfect. It was small and very old, but it had an open floor plan and gleaming oak floors. It was typical, an old hundred-year house. The plaster was cracked on the ceilings and hanging down, and much of the electrical steel needed updated, and there's no bathroom on the second floor, and there was no insulation in many of the walls. But we worked around the clock for six months, and we hired a crew of really smart guys, none of which, of course, were my dad, but each of which were brilliant in their own ways, and all of which I hired off Craigslist to fix up that house. And we did. We got it done in less than six months. After a childhood of yearning, I wanted done just to be done this time. Our house is not perfect, but it's ours. This world is full of possibilities. And I still doubt that I'm ever going to manage to stay in one place for long. But for now, I choose to be here. I choose to make this my home. Thank you. Janelle Bowers, our next performer, is an organizer, fundraiser, mother, and doula. She lives in Traverse City and has worked in communities all over the country on issues of the environment, harm reduction, community development, arts and culture, nature awareness and education, and sustainability. I was born to a single 19-year-old mother in a small town in Northern California. I was the second of the three children that she would eventually have, and needless to say, she was ill-equipped to handle the pressures of single motherhood. She had little to no education, and she fell into relationship after relationship with abusive men. And I was too young to remember the reasons for all of the times that we had to pack last minute, but I'm sure that the truth lay somewhere in between irresponsibility, job insecurity, and drug use. 
But what I do know is that by five years old, I knew how to properly pack and unpack an entire kitchen and my bedroom in less than 48 hours. When I was in the first grade, we made a particularly hasty move from one house to another, forcing me to go to my second school in as many years. It was this giant, beautiful, four-bedroom, two-story home in the woods. I had my own bedroom, which was really cool, and it had, it had royal blue shag carpet to my six-year-old brain that was like very regal. It had a fancy brass chandelier. And I can remember laying on that carpet for hours with my little safety scissors, trimming the shag over and over again. <laughs> Whenever we would move, my mother, she would have this new lease on life. And she would seem like she was like brimming with optimism, like this move was gonna fix it all. And there would be this flurry of activity and she would turn on music and we would, we would unpack together and we would take our time to set everything up just as it should be. And the first six months in that home, I can remember coming home from school and my mother having made homemade pasta on a pasta maker that my grandmother gave her for Christmas. It would be hanging around the big beautiful kitchen on wooden dowels everywhere. And she would let me help her make dinner and we would make a huge nest out of couch cushions in the middle of the living room floor by the wood stove and watch Disney movies on our big Zenith console TV that sat on the floor. My mother had been, for the last few years, in a relationship with my younger brother's father, whose name was John, and he was an incredibly abusive man. And true to abusive man mode, they would go through these cycles where he would be really nice and supportive and playful with my mother and us kids, but that would be punctuated by these moments of genuine rage from him, where he would just fly into terror that was generally directed at my mother and my older brother. And as time went on in that home, the, the, the beatings grew more frequent and more intense, and my mom just began to check out. She was working multiple jobs, during the day, she worked in a fish factory on an assembly line. And at night, she would come home, and she was only 27 years old, so she would get dressed up in a miniskirt and go cocktail waitress. And the days of coming home to a house full of the smells of, of fresh manicotti or a beautifully roasted chicken began to fade away. And the days that we would come home to an empty house became more the norm. And at some point, she devised a plan to make him leave. So she called an old friend, and she found some construction work for him in Kansas, thinking that if she could just get him out of the house long enough, she could put some distance between the two of them so that she could get out. And she did that. The part of her plan that we didn't know about was that she found another man to insert into that place, I'm sure in equal parts for protection, and maybe some financial security or perceived financial security. Soon we began to spend time with a man named Robert and his children, two of them. Their names were Raymond and Melvin, and they were absolutely terrifying children. They were like bad kids. My mom called them the children of the corn. Robert lived in this town just over from us, and we started to kind of stay at his house and stay at our house less and less. And when we were there, the adults would stay awake for hours playing cards and doing meth. 
And as my mother grew away from her abusive relationship with John, she grew closer to her relationship with methamphetamines. We rarely went to school. And after a period, I don't really remember my mother going to work at all anymore. And yet she was absent more frequently. And there would be times where she would leave us at our house, me and my two brothers, 10, 8, and, and 4, respectively, at home alone. And there were times that we would wake up, and in that big, beautiful house that had seemed so warm just a short year before that, felt huge and cold. And my brothers and I, we would huddle around the stove with the stove open and turned on for heat. Eventually, my mother stopped paying rent there, and we were evicted, leaving us to move into Robert's house. His house was small, two-bedroom, the only house in a trailer park, so you know it was in a good neighborhood. But it was just on the street from an elementary school, and there, were like, there was this field in the back that had these really sweet BMX bike jumps, so we were kind of excited about that. But this move, like the others, they were done in a hurry, only this time much less organized than before. We just shoved these huge boxes full of disheveled things into a storage unit. And unlike other times, my mother wasn't brimming with optimism. She was just full of rage. And when we got there, she barely tried to make it home. There were two small bedrooms, in one of them, there was a bare, almost completely collapsed, dirty old mattress on a steel frame that Melvin and Raymond had jumped on so relentlessly that it bowed deeply in the middle. The entire house was covered in wall-to-wall -wall car wall -wall carpet. That was like the carpet you would find in a, in a shop floor, worn and dirty. My mother and Robert had a bedroom. And then there was the question of where to put my two brothers and I. So my mother attempted to make a room for us, which was actually just a laundry room. It had enough room to shove two twin beds in, and they fit exactly into the space between the walls. And my, brother and I would have, my brothers and I would have to climb in from the foot of the bed. There was about a three-foot walkway between the bed and the washer and dryer that also lived in the room. There was one window, but it was covered in black plastic. And on the other side of that window, there was a greenhouse where Robert grew pot. It was a really sad room. It smelled bad, and it was frequently noisy and hot from the washer and dryer. And it didn't take very long for this bleak situation to become worse. Together, my mother and Robert began to use drugs almost constantly. The house was awful and unkempt. Robert had all these stray cats that were indoor-outdoor, and once the mama cat had, had kittens inside the walls. She had gotten in through a hole in the siding on the outside of the house, and we had to hear for weeks the cries of these kittens, trapped in between the walls, between the kitchen and the bathroom. And eventually, the mama abandoned her kittens, and we had to listen to them as they cried to death on the wall. Eventually, the uncleaned lint filter in our makeshift Bedroom caught fire while my brother and I slept. So after that, we got shuffled around the house, sleeping in one bedroom when Raymond and Melvin weren't home, or on the floor when they were. My older brother eventually took up residency in a travel trailer that lived in the front yard. Fights be between my mother and Robert became more frequent, and 
After days of not sleeping, he would fly out of control, to which my mother met with equal parts rage. She would come and pull us out of our beds, screaming and running us to the car, him chasing her down the driveway. He once threw a full can of beer at the back of her head, taking her feet out from underneath her and shoving gravel into her chin. We would leave crying and scared and my mother sobbing uncontrollably, shaking with anger and fear. Eventually our time in that house came to an end. I woke one morning in bed, the bed that I shared with my little brother, us about 10 and six at this point. He was covered in bubble gum. You see, he had, he had fallen asleep with it in his mouth. And he had been sleeping in shorts or something, and so there were bits of bubble gum dried all over his skin. And when I got up and I looked around the house for my mother and Robert, and they were nowhere to be found, so I got my brother out of bed, and I took him to the shower where I was attempting to scrub the gum off of his body. When three police officers burst into the bathroom, guns drawn. They were shocked at first to find two children in the shower together until I explained what, to them what had happened. They asked us to get out of the shower, and they had us sit on our in our towels in the living room floor as they pulled 30-gallon trash bag, bags full of pot, bag after bag after bag out of the house. And they questioned my older brother, who was equally clueless. Sometime later, my mother and Robert returned to the house. My mom put on this really impressive show, pleading that we didn't live there. When the police asked us, we said, no, we don't live here. They just went to breakfast and left us sleeping. Robert was taken to jail and we were allowed to leave. But we didn't have anywhere to live. My mother got a job again. And when we were able to stay in hotel rooms, we didn't go to school. My mom would leave us uh, in the hotel room to sneak into the hotel pool while she was at her waitressing breakfast shift job. We would change hotels often because she wouldn't be able to pay the bill any longer, and so we would change hotels, and when we ran out of hotels to change to, we moved to the car. Sleeping in a two-door Datsun with a sunroof that leaked wasn't ideal, but I preferred that because at least on those days, I got to go to school. And for three months, we roamed between hotel rooms and the car and friends' houses. Times at the home of friends were the worst because we would be left in the living room of a smoke-filled house to hear, hear adults drinking and, and doing meth all night. Leaving my 10-year-old self to wake up in the morning and care for my brother and help him with homework and attempt to comb his hair and feed him. Eventually, our family friend, Alan, allowed us to move into one of his rental homes, and this was by no means fancy. The house had once been a chicken coop, converted later to a garage and later still to a small three-bedroom house, and when we moved in, the walls were filthy with nicotine. I spent days and days scrubbing them. There were no cupboard doors. There were hypodermic needles everywhere. There was a transmission in the middle of the living room floor and a, a bullet hole from a pellet gun in the bay window, 15 cars in the yard. But it was a home, and I get I had my own room, even if it was small. And my mother, again, had this optimism about life. She worked to make our house feel like a home. And while the drug addiction continued, we had a place to live and, and no one was abusing her. 
Eventually, she married Alan, and the first few years of that marriage were hard, but eventually we found this space of equilibrium. And Alan provided us with some stability. He loved us, and he gave my mother the foundation that she needed to be a mother again. And I was able to see, maybe for the first time, what a normal life could and should look like. So 20 years later, when I found myself with a three-year-old, seven months pregnant, and divorcing from my husband. I had been working as a doula then, and my husband and I owned a cleaning business together, and as my divorce approached, I found myself with, with nowhere to live, no car, and no job. And panic set in. I had made this promise to myself all those years ago with, with my mother that I would never be like her that I would never allow my stability to be dependent on another person, and that I would never depend on a man to provide for me. But here I was. And after the baby was born and I was still living with my ex-husband, I found myself in the life equivalent to a dog chasing its tail. I couldn't find a house because I didn't have a job, and I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a car, and I had no money for childcare because I didn't have a job. And I circled around and around and around. And I finally found a job. Waiting tables, breakfast shift. But the resort had on-site childcare and they would take it from my first paycheck so I didn't have to pay them up front. And a friend lent me her car and another friend allowed me to move into their falling apart farmhouse that that she lived in. The farmhouse was heated on propane and, and we were so poor that we couldn't turn the heat up past 55 degrees in that brutal polar vortex winter. And I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning and I would get myself and an infant and a three-year-old to work an hour away, usually in a whiteout snowstorm. But the whole situation felt far too familiar. It was too close to being there, and I dug in, and I, I dug in, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and so when my friends asked me to move out because watching my life was too hard for them, I felt that I would be there again, that I was going to end up my mother, that despite my efforts to create the life and the family that I wanted, it was happening to me. And by some stroke of dumb luck, I happened to meet another single mother who needed a roommate, and I was able to move myself and my kids into her basement. And sure, it had a strange drop ceiling, and the floor looked like a high school gymnasium floor, but I went to Goodwill, and I found myself some furniture, and I took on the face of optimism that my mother had shown me for all of those years, and I shellacked the shit out of that turd until it shone. And I was grateful for a roof over our heads. And I was grateful that my stepfather had come in at just the right time in my development to show me what stability could look like. And I was grateful to my mother for showing me how to persevere and never, never, never give up. And it was three years ago that me and my two small children faced being homeless. And I have worked hard and I know, I know that I could have been there and as much as I would like to say that it was me, I know that it was some combination of the kindness of friends and some social safety nets and just pure, pure dumb luck. 
that I didn't end up there. That I know, I know that it's not just the hard work that I put in. That if it wasn't for the right alignment and a little bit of help, that I, I would have been that single mother too. Thank you. Our next performer, Elon Cameron, is a co-founder of Up North Pride. She worked with homeless populations in Chicago around issues of health care and provided acupuncture services to the unhoused and low-income populations for many years. She is a writer and board-certified acupuncturist. The first home I remember was on the water, a wooded lot full of magic I was certain was just for me. At age five, I was pretty convinced that the moon followed me wherever I went. I'd stare at the sky with joy and wonder, certain that the universe was pleased. See, there were happy parts of my childhood. They say memory softens the edges, hushes the yelling, soothes the hackles. The blur of time is a bit of a blessing, I suppose. I didn't have that feeling of being deeply settled again until I was 41 years old. When Jen, my spouse, and I moved in the house that it took us four years to build. Build. The first time I brought her to Traverse City, she fell in love, as people do, with this place. The bays, the lake, the nature, people, the life. I really couldn't argue with her. She was like, look, I will mow lawns if I have to. <laughs> she didn't have to mow lawns, but we did live in a generous friend's attic for six whole months. And if we hadn't had that soft place to land, there's no way we could have made this transition from our life to sh in Chicago to Traverse City and been able to stay. I didn't have that feeling of home when we were in that transition. It was interesting, the timing of coming home, arriving home, having a home, being home. For the first time in so very long, something within me felt more anchored, like I'd finally been able to lay down the roots I'd been carrying for so many years. My grandfather bought this land. He worked 30 acres and loved it. They grew corn and beans and every kind of cabbage. They planted rows of beets and carrots and foraged watercress from the stream out front. They planted plum trees, the source of my family's most favorite recipe, the Flangkuchen. I know it wasn't easy or as idyllic as my imaginings, but I can feel the love in this land. I can feel my ancestors, these sturdy, stalwart individuals who were essentially unstoppable. Over time, my grandfather's land was, or my great-grandfather's land was whittled away, slowly sold parcel by parcel. My great-uncle says, the old man was swindled by a real shyster. <laughs> it became so fragmented and home to so many people we weren't related to and people we didn't even know. I wanted to hold on to this dream that my forebears had, 
a place so rich in soil they wouldn't go hungry. Their children would always be nourished by the bounty of the land. This optimism, this ideal of survival in abundance, I held on to that. And the fact that my mother promised my grandmother that under no circumstances would she ever sell the land. That was the single chip of power that I held because she wanted to sell it. And her boyfriend really wanted her to sell it. And we fought like cats over this for decades. But I played that chip over and over again until one day when my mom thought she might die. She'd been diagnosed with cancer and feeling that her treatment here in Traverse City was insufficient, I whisked her off to Chicago, and she lived with Jen and I. This place, our apartment in Chicago, her hospital an hour away from our home, we'd drive there after a long day's work. She went under treatment for about three months. We took on the title, we took on the taxes, there were back taxes. I'd never heard that term before. <laughs> it was like this log of things from our history that we didn't get to enjoy, but we were suddenly responsible for. And the new taxes were rolling in, just moment by moment. <laughs> we maxed out my student loans. We borrowed on every good grace we had. We worked hard at multiple jobs while finishing up our schooling and dreaming of our bright future here in these North Woods. I grew up working class poor, an only child of two only children. My dad was a dreamer and a drinker who couldn't keep a construction job for more than a couple months. And my mom was a jeweler, a sculptor of metals to the highest order. And she sold her jewelry the most difficult way possible by traveling to art fairs all over the country. We lived on a nice street. My dad always said, you know, it's better to be poor around rich people. <laughs> Our house was the most dilapidated on the block and the neighbors avoided us because we were the weird ones. Because sometimes a TV flew out of the second story window. And sometimes there would be yelling, and a chest of drawers would come crashing to the ground. Or one time, when the house had burned to its bones, when there was nothing but soot and scorched wood, my whole childhood fell out that window. That was when my parents separated. My dad went into rehab, and I had to go to another elementary school, the fancy elementary school, where I didn't know the rules. Both of my parents partnered up soon after their divorce. I did the usual child of divorce thing where I lived at one house and visited the other. I always felt more at home at my mom's, felt like I could do things wrong and just be myself. But my dad, my dad and his wife had this ability to polish a turd. They could put a fresh coat of paint on anything. I just had this feeling that they were gonna save me from my weirdness. They could teach me at least how to hide it. Even though that felt like some kind of deception, it was a deception I wanted to master because it seemed the key to getting through every important door in life. I saw how horribly people looked at my mom 
and her boyfriend, Keith. When they met, he was a tilt-a-whirl operator from the UP. <laughs> wearing a t-shirt that said, mustache rides 25 cents. After my parents divorced, she spent a lot of time going to the gym, pumping iron, bleaching her hair blonde, and skipping meals for cocaine. She was a size eight, six foot tall blonde bombshell who, run, who won arm wrestling competitions, and the world was her coke straw. Everything about this boyfriend displeased me. He was feral and wild in ways that I did not accept or understand. How could my mom go from my dad, who was like this fucked up guy who was working to recover himself, to, to be better than a total loser, to dating someone who was so obviously a total loser? He made my skin crawl as a 12-year-old girl. It took me many years and a lot of tragedy, quite honestly, to appreciate that man. Twisted as it may be, love is love. And he really loved my mom. While Jen and I were working to build our house, my mom started mentioning Bank of America letters. She said they were gonna help her. All she had to do was stop paying. And they were gonna get her a better rate. They'd negotiate on her behalf. It was all gonna be okay. By the time Jen and I figured out what was going on, it was already happening. The land, the place that we'd been paying taxes on was implicated in this loss. We lived in uncertainty. We were gonna lose everything. Long phone calls to banks. We were on hold for hours, just with that awful music and that recurring message not even telling you your place in line, but just saying, we'll get to you as soon as we can. Paperwork. There were letters that required documentation and paperwork, the kind of paperwork that could destroy even the most deft and nimble, anal retentive administrative skill set. We managed to somehow, by miracle, untangle our land from my mother's estate. We were wrapping up almost two years of building. The bad news layered up like a giant shit cake. We obtained occupancy of our home in March, and by May, Mom and Keith were being evicted by Bank of America. Next layer, Keith was now diagnosed with end-stage multiple metastatic cancer. Next layer, they lost the cab company that was finally starting to turn a profit. Next layer, they had to be out of their home by June 1st. Next layer, they had no money, no savings, no way of working because my mother's full-time job was now Keith's care, keeping his medication schedule, tracking his decline in bottles of pills. Moving them wasn't just a move. There was hoarding. There was an enormous quantity of shit. <laughs> There were endless treasures and collectibles in about 15 boxes of canned goods. We took so many things to the dump. 
We took as much as we could to Women's Resource Center, and we donated wherever we could. We scheduled yard sales and begged friends for help hauling and moving their massive collection of stuff. And fortunately, people showed up and helped us. We got a 20-foot by 60-foot storage unit with a full loft, and it was packed to the ceiling. It's essentially the size of a medium-sized barn. As it came closer to the time where my mom was being evicted from her home, she felt helpless and angry. She didn't know what to do. So she graffitied the walls of her home that was about to be taken from her with, fuck you, Bank of America, you fucking fascists! She misspelled the word fascists. <laughs> Talking to my mom with Jen on the phone, we gathered the shit cake of news. We didn't even really discuss it with each other. We just looked at each other and shrugged and rolled up our sleeves. Jen said, I think you're going to have to move in with us, Cheryl. Ignoring Jen completely, she addressed me, Elon, I don't think this is a very good idea. I know it isn't a fucking good idea, Mom, but it's the only solution we have, so you're moving in, okay? My contrary mother, who has an argument for literally everything, was silent. I just blinked. They moved in. The first few weeks were an interesting adjustment that difficult period where you don't really know where things go or how to use stuff. It's like, how does this stove work and where do you keep the utensils? I don't even know how my mom came up to speed so quickly, but she did. She managed how to do life in our home and how to live in a space that felt very much like they were in our space. See, we built a one-bedroom house with an open floor plan because we have no plans of having children and we kind of wanted to dissuade people from coming to stay for too long. <laughs> we moved a medical bed into the living room. We moved a bed for my mom into the living room. And they brought their two dogs and a cat. Keith was an excruciating pain and on high levels of morphine, methadone, and anything else you can think of. Due to his many years of practice drug use, those did little to alter him. I woke up numerous times in the middle of the night to this scene. It's 4 a.m. There is a 60-year-old man pissing on the floor above my head. I'd been asleep, but when the handheld urinal, handheld urinal, that's a thing, hit the bare floor above my head, I heard it, and the stream of liquid to follow was none other than. Now, I heard this hushed voice, God damn it, Keith! Now, Keith's been dead a few years, and I wish him peace, but in life, for at least the last 30 years, the years he spent with my mother, I'm pretty sure he heard no two words more often than, God damn it, Keith! <laughs> and I could understand that. 
because there was piss on the floor. And the dogs peed on the floor. And so there were just pee pads everywhere. It was getting old. They lived with us for six months. There were fun times. There were these weird moments where we felt like we were just like college roomies at this weird party that was about death. We tried to keep it a little lighter. We tried to make it like that so that it wasn't just a march toward the doom. Keith came into my house so differently than how he came into my life. He was apologetic. He tried. He said thank you. My mother had given shelter to numerous people, with or without my help. When I was in high school, a friend got thrown out because her parents didn't like her dating choice. She came to live with us. When I was in college, a friend got thrown out because her parents didn't like that she was queer, so she stayed for two years. Throughout life, I was just taught this kind of helpfulness, that if you have a home, you share your home, and if you have a resource you can spare, you give it. By wintertime, they were able to find a trailer at Meadow Lane. He didn't want to leave. I still feel like such a dick for making him do it. But a friend of mine recently pointed out that guilt is a masturbatory and narcissistic emotion, so I'm trying to work through that. A year and a half later, my dad was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And through a course of events that I can't believe enough to even explain, his wife, when he was a whopping 90 pounds soaking wet, ordered a PPO, a personal protection order, because she was scared for her life. Which allowed her to take full ownership of the home and, for better or worse, gratefully sell it and move somewhere else. But the PPO again required us to lawyer up, if only to get my dad's ancient dog. It was one of those situations where I'm like, I've hired lawyers to deal with my parents. I've never hired a lawyer for anything else. I've only hired lawyers to deal with my parents. <laughs> and it made me realize that part in our family when I was five years old, and my parents were fighting as they wanted to do. They just wanted to fight. And I got between them, and I know I was little because my hands were on their kneecaps. And I said, someone is going to have to start acting like an adult around here. <laughs> and they looked at each other and thought, oh my god. But my dad needed a place to live, so we welcomed him and his 10 to 12 reusable grocery bags full of flotsam and jetsam, which he immediately distributed over every surface of our home within minutes. It was like a whirlwind of weird shit everywhere. He was treating himself with enormous doses of medical marijuana and mostly quite chipper about it. He died just as he said he would. He'd be walking around one day and gone the next. 
I was pissed at him when he was alive for saying that. I was like, you don't get to pick that. You don't get to tell me what's gonna happen. And when he did, I was like, okay, class act. <laughs> the day before, he'd been out of pocket. I couldn't reach him, his, wasn't answering his phone. I didn't know what was going on. He and my mom were going to yard sales, always looking for hidden treasure right up to the end. He said, I was worried we were going to get caught. I was like, well, I caught you. <laughs> I've had all three of my parents in my home, each due to cancer. I'm of a generation that birthed the identity slacker. Many folks in my generation returned home after college. Many of them lived with parents for long periods of time. Some of them still do often just to settle, to stabilize after a storm. I didn't get that. Having that weird reversal, having had both of my parents live with me, just reinforced the thing that I say all the time, which is, with parents like mine, you don't need children. <laughs> and yet, caring for them is something I'm really proud of. Something as a grown person makes me feel like I've done some good in this world, even if I didn't let them stay, even if I was a jerk about the piss-covered floors. I can feel good that this home, sturdy and strong like my ancestors, has housed my whole family, has given shelter from life's storms to both of my parents and to us. Jen and I, as we forge our way in this world, building community and working for a more just future, I hope, I hope that one day there is no more homelessness. It seems so senseless to me that we're one of the most wealthy fucking countries in the world. And we can't tend to our most vulnerable populations. I have to believe that we as a nation would be a little stronger and could hold our heads just a little bit higher and feel a little better about ourselves if we could solve this problem. I can say as someone who had the good fortune to help people less fortunate than myself, people who would have faced homelessness were it not for my place, taking someone in feels good. We should all do it. Thank you. Our last performer of the evening, Crystal Frost, has been a part of the WTCM radio family for five years. She co-founded the Cherry Tea Ball Drop in 2009 and is a dedicated volunteer for the Children's Advocacy Center. So it was New Year's Eve 2011, and I was on a stage in downtown Traverse City. It was the final day of the year, and it had been a pretty terrible year for me. I mean, Dante's Inferno, seven layers of hell, sort of terrible. And I started to reflect, because that's what you do on New Year's Eve. And there were so many things, so many things so much that had gone wrong 
in 2011. But my quiet reflection had to stay quiet because at that moment I was standing in front of thousands of people. I had co-founded the Cherry Tea New Year's Eve ball drop two years earlier and in an ironic twist of fate, 2011 was the year that our party, with a purpose, was raising money for the Goodwill Inn. So it was there, during that countdown, that my reflection unveiled the paradoxical moment, my revelation, counted down with great ceremony during those final seconds of a terrible year. 10, I lost my job. Nine, I lost my job so I lost my income. Eight, I lost my income. Seven, I couldn't pay my bills. Six, I lost my car. Five, I lost my credit. Four, I lost my spirit. Three, I lost my ability to get out of bed in the morning. Two, the man I loved and lived with cheated on me, so I lost my home. And one, I was standing on that stage and I suddenly realized, one, I had no idea where I was going to sleep that night. Happy New Year. I was homeless. Although I could never bring myself to use the term homeless, it's only a term that I've started using recently. It is true, it had been months of me and my boys crashing around the couches and spare rooms of other people, and I used the term crashing, I used crashing to describe my housing status post-betrayal and breakup. I was crashing at my mom's house, I crashed at my friends' houses, and I even crashed with my ex-husband, but crashing, that's never a word that evokes a sense of security. We avoid the crash, whether it's that tired feeling in the afternoon or an airplane plummeting to the ground, we look for some coffee or a parachute and we try not to crash. But I chose that term, crashing, because homeless was too scary. It was too real. And yet in that moment, I was homeless in front of thousands of people raising money to prevent homelessness. It wasn't a new feeling, this housing insecurity, because for as long as I can remember, I have been afraid of not having a place to live. Literally, from my youngest memories until even today, I have a nagging feeling that I will wake up and I will have lost everything. And that worry is more than concern. It, it, it's, it's like it's woven into the very fabric of who I am. My grandma had something like that. She used to keep her money in a coffee can and she would hide it under her bed 
Well, she grew up in the Depression, and she told me, that's just what you do. And I was always moving when I was growing up. I was sort of an accidental nomad. I was moving and moving and moving and afraid because life had never shown me that anything was ever a constant. My dad was never someone to be trusted. But when you're a child, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so when he said he wouldn't hit my mom again, I believed him. And when he said he was sorry for shaking our Christmas tree so hard that all the bulbs fell off, crashing to the floor, I forgave him. So many times I looked the other way. When he blew all of our rent money over and over again on drugs, when he chased my mom around the house with a knife, and even when he said it was very important that I didn't tell anyone about the sexual abuse, I understood, and I didn't. I guess I always believed him because it was too scary not to. But my mom didn't believe him. And I'm not sure what finally made the difference for her. I'm not sure the catalyst for her plan to our escape, but there I was. The screen knocked out of our bedroom window, the door locked behind us, and my mom lowering me to the ground, my feet on the ground outside our trailer, and grabbing one by one my sister, my mom handing me my brother, and four paper bags. At that moment, we were refugees escaping in the night, just four broken but determined people with four paper bags. And we spent the next two years sleeping on a pull-out couch at my grandma's house, the kind of couch with the bar that somehow manages to hit you right in the lower back, like right in the kidneys. And at this point, there were five of us, because just a few weeks after that great escape, my mom realized she was pregnant with my sister Amanda, but that wasn't enough for her to go back. She was not going back. She was just a kid with four kids, working constantly toward that goal of finding our home. And after two years of sleeping on a pull-out couch, she found it. And I remember the first time I walked into that little blue house on Circle Drive in Interlochen. I remember the yellow and brown linoleum floors, the wood paneling walls, the brown shag carpet, the smell of Lysol and cigarettes, the smell of my childhood. And I remember that first night at that new house, it was our house. We didn't have a kitchen table, so mom spread a bed sheet across our moving boxes and we ate spaghetti on the floor. My mom was a superhero, but she was in a constant battle with a powerful enemy called poverty. And that's how the fear crept in. That undeniable fear that I saw on my mom's face I heard in her voice, and I felt every time we didn't quite have enough food, and every time I brought home a permission slip for a field trip, and I'm excited, and I saw it. Because even though I needed only $2, it was $2.
That feeling of dread because a holiday meant that the little help that she got from the government was going to be late. Or the times that we played shadow puppets on the walls because electricity was disconnected. We went without power, we went without heat, but we always, always, always had that little blue house. And my mom's lessons were heard. Don't trust men and always make the house payment. So back on that stage, I could feel myself crashing, cracking, fighting back tears. I was just seconds into 2012, and I had just realized that my worst fear had caught up to me. Fear followed by shame and guilt and surrounded in a deep sadness that reflected so much of my soul, it was actually hard to understand where it was really coming from. And I kept thinking of my mom's lessons, that self-reliance and hard work. And I couldn't help but think that I had failed her. And I was homeless. And my children didn't have a home. And it was all my fault. But for thousands of people celebrating the new year, they didn't know that. Even most of my friends and family didn't know that. My smile was always really a good way of keeping the truth from people who didn't need to know. And in all of my life, I have never felt so ashamed and yet equally in that same moment so proud because we were there trying to raise money to help people who didn't know where they were going to sleep that night. People like me. And I kept smiling, and even though the tears started streaming down my face, flowing hot, and my cheeks were frozen, and I didn't let anyone know what was happening in my head. People are funny like that, aren't they? Because so many of us smile through those circumstances that are almost too painful to even talk about. So many of us have that fear and that shame and that guilt and that doubt. It's waving to us from our bedroom closet. It's sitting in the passenger seat on the way to work. It's glaring at us from bare cupboards and it's laughing when we avoid the call from the bank. So many of us are just one job loss, one medical issue, one car repair, one house repair, one relationship loss, one fill in the blank. Just one thing away from standing on our own stage, smiling at our own audience, and wondering, where am I going to sleep tonight? Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to the State Theater for hosting the show, to our regular season venue sponsor, the Workshop Brewing Company, for providing beverages that evening, and to our guest MC Dan Wanshura. A very special thank you to Safe Harbor for your work and mission. To donate or find out more about Safe Harbor, 
visit them at gtsafeharbor.org. To find out more about Hearsay, visit our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Thank you.